heard a warning that this podcast contains swears and use of lots of explicit sexual language. Therefore, it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 18 or anyone who thinks polyamory is what you need to fill in your holes. I'm ahead of the game. Welcome back to Smut Drop. This is your weekly roundup to the more eccentric side of sex and relationships from metro.co.uk. I'm Miranda Kane, and on this week's show, I'll be looking at this season's new dating trends, talking to Roy Graf about his solo polyamory, and I'll be answering a few kinky questions you threw into my fun bag. If you like what you hear, then please rate, review, or at least subscribe. And I hope you're ready, because I'm about to put the yawn in unicorn. Hello, 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 dear listener. Okay, quick question. Have you ever eco-dumped someone? Yeah, I know, I know. It all sounds like bedroom games have gotten a little too organic. Um, But actually, eco-dumping is another one of these lovely dating trends that just never seem to stop. Honestly, I don't even know how the human race is going to survive all of this stuff. Um, Look, you know what dating trends are, yeah? Uh, You've got ghosting, cuffing season, submarining, these have all made it into the modern day lexicon. And if you don't know them, then you obviously haven't been single for long enough. But don't worry, I'm sure you'll get to experience them soon. (laughs) So what is new? Well, coming in at number five, we have got benching. Benching. This is where you are in multiple situationships. So uh, that's when you've got someone your plan B, C, D. You're just testing the waters for a better catch. Um, Now that just sounds like dating, really, doesn't it? Am I wrong? Number four, cookie jarring. Cookie jarring is when someone wants to have a relationship with you, but purely because you're a nice little security blanket. You're you're their backup plan. So you're their plan C. <laughs> yeah. Benching doesn't sound so good now, does it? You can expect to see more of this in the autumn when we have the lovely bit of cuffing season. Uh, they're just likely to see you as a fling rather than a long-term potential. Number three... Yes, it's eco-dumping, because it's no longer good enough to just have hobbies or interests. No, you have got to have a passion for the environment. Now, I absolutely super applaud anyone protecting the environment. That is what we need. I know, I know. But also, let's be gentle on each other if we forget to wash out the occasional bit of recycling, yeah? Okay? I know, personal experience here. Number two, orbiting. Ooh, this is when you have someone on your social media who follows with you, engages with you, likes all your posts, but they never speak to you. They never slide into your DMs. Oh, it's a little bit creepy for me. I'm not too sure I like that one. Now... What do you think my number one pet peeve is when it comes to dating trends? First of all, I'm going to give you my honourable side mention. Uh, my honourable mention goes to sidebarring. Oh, 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 I do not stand for this, even when I'm out with my mates. This is where you're in a restaurant and instead of talking to you... 
they start looking at their phone. <gasps> no, get out. No, they're just not present. They're not talking to you. Just, I just stand up and leave. I do that with my friends, let alone anyone I'm on a date with. Uh, but no, my number one pet peeve is pocketing. <gasps> pocketing. To pocket someone is to only be available when it's convenient to you and your schedule. Oh my God. No, I hate that. No, if you want to pocket me, then you are going to pay me to turn up when you want it. Nah, -uh -uh. no. Uh, oh my God, are any of these sending shivers down your spine? If you've got a dating trend or if you have been a victim of one, then please <laughs> tell me all about it. Uh, you can also find more dating trends if you head to the article from eco-dumping to benching. These are the latest trends to know over at metro.co.uk. But obviously not before my fabulous chat with this week's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, gays and theys, this week's guest is a polyamorous relationship coach and a support group leader who's been holding workshops about non-monogamy for nearly a decade. He focuses on radical honesty, non-violent communication and wheel of consent training. And I want to know just how we can use all of those to make our relationships better, both with other people and ourselves. It's Roy Graf. Hello, Roy. Hello there. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, thanks. How are you? Good. I'm very well, thank you. So you use all these fantastic things in training when it comes to polyamory, but let's go right back to the beginning. How did you get onto the polyamory train? So I was introduced to polyamory about 11 or 12 years ago. It's now a little bit, you know, uh, blurry uh, exactly when, but uh, uh, basically, I was coming out of a long-term monogamous relationship and feeling quite down on myself. So I was just dating a lot to get over the funk, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I was dating in a way that was open. I was telling people I'm not looking for anything exclusive, anything serious. And therefore, I'm dating multiple people at the same time and was just very open about it. But I didn't have any of the vocabulary or knowing I'd ever heard about polyamory or non-monogamy as, as a thing. But... but I'd met somebody online that uh, I really liked. So we had a really nice match and then we went on a date. And in the date, she told me that she doesn't believe in monogamy. She um, was married and divorced, has had an adult son and just wanted to have her freedom, you know. And she basically told me about these terms about polyamory. She told me about the book, The Ethical Slut, and gave me a few other books to read. And in that first date, I... Um, just remember thinking, wow, that's actually a thing. People do that and it's totally cool to just talk about it, you know, and uh, to express your desire to to also date other people. I like the idea. I also liked her and wanted to date her specifically and therefore was happy to agree to whatever her terms are so I can date her. <laughs> so that's really how it started. <laughs> but I, I was curious, so I read the books and uh, started doing a little bit of digging and research. And uh, it just felt right to at the time to do it, although I didn't know that it would be that it will become something that I'm really tied to as an identity. And that took a while to really figure out. I think where I am now with that is that looking back with a very different mindset and this experience now of over a decade of practicing polyamory, I'm pretty sure I always was polyamorous and just did not have the vocabulary or any way of really relating to that notion. So it's more of an orientation for me, but 
compulsory default monogamy is just always there in front of you. And I was never really allowed or told that it's okay to, to question that. I found that I, I realized, again, with hindsight, that many things that troubled me and felt like uh, just weren't quite right in monogamous relationships were really down to the fact that I'm not monogamous. Mm, did you find, because I read somewhere where you were saying how you uh, started out, when you started out into the world of uh, dating other people, and as you were saying, you know, just you didn't want to get tied down. What kind of mistakes were you making that you now know, now that you have learned the language, what kind of mistakes were you making then? And are there any mistakes that you see are common with other people? Well, there were times in the past, again, before knowing all everything I know now, uh, for example, I was married before, and at some point, me and my ex-wife um, decided to open up the marriage and have like a don't ask, don't tell type arrangement where we could see other people, but... Uh, she didn't want to know about whether I was or wasn't seeing other people. Mm. And that really wasn't very, very good way of doing it. I know for some people that particular dynamic works for a while, but I think long-term it doesn't really work. And we were attempting to solve some problems in our relationship by going and having sex maybe with other people. Right. Mm. And I don't believe that, you know, doing that isn't, doesn't really work. There might be some some cases where people will look for sex outside a, a primary uh, main relationship because they're not fully fully fulfilled. There's a certain kink that they want to try that their partner isn't interested in, but that's done with consent and with conscious awareness of like, yeah, I, you know what, I'm not really into this. You could do it with other people, but if you're having problems in relationships that you can't really address and really fully resolve, and instead you just focus your energy on other people, that's not going to help you. You described it as don't ask, don't tell. Is is this where the practice of radical honesty comes in? Well, um, for me, discovering radical honesty, which is something that happened uh, around COVID times, when I was doing a lot of soul searching and also kind of self-development, just signing up to a lot of courses and trying different things like nonviolent communication, wheel of consent, and also radical honesty. But specifically, radical honesty shows me that uh, being afraid of being fully transparent and fully honest um, often means that I'm not that I'm kind of lying to myself first of all. Or I'm not fully exploring and expressing who I am, and I'm also not giving my partner the information they need to make clear and informed decisions about their behavior and their actions. So by withholding stuff that might impact their behavior, I'm essentially manipulating them. So let's go back to the beginning of where if if people are interested in going into polyamory, we talk a lot about polyamory in the show, but it's always really interesting to get different points of views. Um, and you practice solo polyamory. So I want to know where people can start. Well, first of all, what solo polyamory is and how people can start looking into seeing whether that's the right practice for them. Sure. So I mean, I'm, I've come to that conclusion that I prefer solo polyamory or that it matches best with my personality and, and really who I am through a process of trial and error. I tried different ways of doing it. I tried an open relationship with a primary partner. I tried polyamory, living with a nesting partner uh, in, a, again, kind of a hierarchy situation. And eventually I came to this, um, for me, uh, the realization that living alone for now and having multiple partners that I develop independently relationship with them, we date in parallel, um, and there's no hierarchy. Nobody is uh, more important to me or there's nobody that I um, elevate to a particular position, right? Each relationship is its own unique kind of ecosystem. And what we do there doesn't necessarily have to affect the other relationships. So that's what solo polyamory for me. There's no hierarchy. 
and I have a primary relationship with myself. I also focus on that, on being alone, developing friendships, you know, developing my own interests, etc. So, um, in this in this kind of dynamic, um, I'm not looking to move in with any particular person. Um, I'm not looking to also start a family with a particular person. Although that can happen also with solo polyamory, it gets a bit more complicated, but it's still possible. Now, people don't always know what's right for them until they try it, until they experiment it. When I, when I coach clients, they come to me sometimes not even knowing if, if they are polyamorous or if they're just being very avoidant or they're afraid of commitment. And I think it's important to have these questions. I, I believe that if somebody feels they're polyamorous, then that's great. That's what they are. Um, but it's also still helpful to question. And I did that as well especially through my psychotherapy training, questioning a lot of like of the, um, the reasons why I might be choosing this particular dynamic in relationships. Um, because like everybody, I have my childhood trauma, I have um, attachment issues, etc. So it's good to, to go through a process of, of self-questioning. Okay, so you run a, a men's group when it comes to polyamory and solo polyamory. And I can imagine that if a guy is listening to this and they're thinking, this guy's got it made. Here he is in his man cave. He can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants. And he's just got uh, uh, someone in every port. And they're going to be thinking that that's pretty easy to do. Is it easy or where do people start? What What are the steps that a solo polyamorous straight man has to do in order to keep those relationships secure, safe, and consensual? Um, first off, I'm not totally straight, just to put it out there. <laughs> and um, I do feel like I have it all now. I, I feel very lucky, very fortunate. I have wonderful partners. I have great friends. I have a really strong, um, supportive community. And I also feel very independent in terms of like my own emotional state and um, happy being on my own. But all of that took a lot of bloody work. You know, it was, um, uh, I would say, a decade of um, going to therapy, going to uh, all kinds of doing group works, um, going to various retreats and courses like Radical Honesty, uh, learning about consent in depth through Wheel of Consent, um, going to a lot of kind of Burning Man events, burns where you explore so many different dynamics and come into contact with so many different and varied people with their own experiences and also learning from the relationships that I've been in. At the end of the day, what it really takes is to be incredibly good at communicating and that just takes practice. It takes, I think, courage to be vulnerable and being vulnerable in a way that doesn't put all the... um, the duty of care and the emotional labor on my partner, but taking ownership for the things that I'm vulnerable about that, you know, are my emotional issues, not expecting them to solve it for me, you know? So it's a lot, yeah, there's, there's self-reliance there, um, but also the desire for um, co-creating things and for co-regulating and for, um, uh, and knowing that by doing that, I also have capacity to support my partners, to be there for them when they need me. Mm. So yeah, I, I, I love where I am now. It was hard. And I also went through some very difficult, toxic relationships. I've been in situations where there was um, emotional and physical abuse uh, directed at me. And, and I've had to reckon with the ideas I had before, especially when I was monogamous, of somehow I'm responsible to save my partner, to rescue her, to 
you know, that my needs aren't as important as hers because she feels things more deeply, etc. There's a lot of toxic notions that I held on to that also were preventing me from being truly happy, content, and being able to be the partner that my partners deserve, you know? Mm. So what are the what are the steps though for for listeners if they're thinking they want to take a, a step into this? What are your because you run group shops and you're a leader and you're a relationship coach. So what are your like five steps for people if they want to embark on being a solo polyamorous person? Well, I don't necessarily work with people who only want to do what I do. It's you know people have uh, the whole point and the whole idea of polyamory. Um, as a paradigm shift from an, from kind of mononormative thinking is you can design whatever relationship fits you and your partners. You don't have to stick to a mold. You don't have to follow a particular path or um, step into anybody else's shoes. These are your shoes and you can create and design just your own uh, structures. And that can look so different. So what I'd like to focus on, whether it's coaching or whether it's group work, is first of all, what do you need to do to know yourself? How do you learn about your boundaries? Mm -hmm. How do you learn about your own needs and desires and to differentiate between needs and desires? There's a lot of self-inquiry that has to take place first. And then can you also be happy on your own? Do you need, do you need a partner or partners to feel happy, to feel content? Or can you also find that by, with friends and in other, in other dynamics without having a romantic or sexual partner all the time? So that would be the first step. Mm. And then... The second step is, I think, learning how to communicate these needs, these boundaries, and also your desires with a partner in a very open, honest, transparent way. Mm -hmm. that, that means also being able to receive what they share with you without being activated, without getting defensive. If it's something that, you're, that maybe you feel makes you feel not great about yourself because of what they say, it might appear as criticism, remembering that is their truth, that it doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person, but maybe, you know, there's something that you still have to clarify, or maybe there is an incompatibility. Ultimately, can you just hold space for them to, to and hear what they have to say without being kind of activated mm. and reactionary, mm. right? So that's another, that's a skill that you learn. But if things do activate you, it's possibly because you have some uh, wound from your childhood, from, from past relationships. Again, not your, not your partner's responsibility to heal you there. Often people say, yeah, you know, my partner is so great because she helps me heal and she's, you know, supports my growth, et cetera. Yeah, that's great, but it's not their role. And we have to really be clear about it. If mm. I have a, a wound or trauma, I should go see a therapist uh, or go to group work or whatever it is I need to do. Not expect, my, not expect my partner to be the person who will do that for me. Yeah. They can definitely support if they want to, and that's great. And, and I feel that my partners have been supportive to me and I support them. But it's even more acute, I think, for me, because I am a therapist, uh, to make sure that I don't, fall into that trap of being that for my partners. Mm -hmm. And I also ask them to call me out if I revert to that somehow, you know, just revert to type because it can be quite easy to fall into that, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know if I can give you five steps, but I think that there's a, there's a, there is a kind of a, a progression where you start adapting kind of your mindset or like shifting the mindset from the kind of more, more normative scarcity mindset that I have to, first of all, if I, for me to win, somebody else have to lose. I said, like, if, you know, if I get a partner that I feel is um, the, the perfect match for me, I have to also um, basically burn the bridges behind her so, like, nobody else can get her. Um, and I'm using pronoun terms here because this is kind of I have relationships with, um, with women, but it applies to everybody, right? It's, 
really about um, realizing that my connection with a person uh, is separate from their connection with anybody else. So for me to win, quote unquote, they, they don't have to lose other connections. And it's and, and let go of that competitive mindset, right? That is something that takes time. And it's uh, through reading, through practicing, through talking with other people who have this experience. And from willing to be vulnerable when you have this fear, because the fear often comes from just social expectations. If I allow my partner to date other people, then um, somehow I'm less of a man, less of a woman, or they might get, get away from me. You know, they might find somebody else they like better than me, which while true, isn't a reason to prevent them from doing what they want to do. I think one of my big, my big lessons has been that I don't have any ownership or entitlement uh, to my partner's time, to their body, to their attention, to their energy, right? They choose who they share that with. When people say, I couldn't share my partner, that's, that doesn't mean anything. It's, it's not a thing. You, know, you can't share something that you don't own and you don't own another human being. So mm. so just letting go of a whole that, that possessiveness is, is, a, is a big part of it. And that's really hard because often what we feel as, as what we experience as jealousy is, has to do with this idea that this is my thing. This is like what I built and I don't want anybody else to take it from me. So we have to let go of that notion that somehow a person can be property. Because I, I think a lot of people, when they talk about, when I talk about polyamory to people and opening up a relationship, what a lot of people are worried about is, oh, well, if I open up the relationship, you know, if me and my boyfriend or me and my girlfriend, whatever, they open up their relationship, I'm worried that someone will then take them away. Yeah. And and that's it. And they'll lose that, you know, that that primary relationship with each other what kind of things do you how do you start working through that well they were never yours to begin with that's the most important thing <laughs> that's so very if, true. if they go away they want to go away it's their choice that's their right you know you can't you can't hold on to somebody who doesn't want to be there yeah so that's really yeah. important and even if you're monogamous they can they you know and that's happened forever since monogamy uh became a thing which by the way was after polyamory and monogamy were a thing, right? So polyamory is, is, is older than monogamy. I, I think that a notion that they'll get away or that somebody else will take them also implies that somehow you don't trust your partner, right? Sometimes people say to me, clients say to me, well, I trust my partner, but I don't trust other men or I don't trust other women, but I do trust my partner. Well, do you? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, if you see them as an adult, right, uh, as equal to you, and you can trust yourself to not leave them just because you've you've met somebody else who's nice, then you can extend the same trust to them. Sometimes people have a problem with uh, with that because they don't trust, you know, men, for example. So they're worried that th that their partner will be hurt by other men. And I think that that also is a, is is a call to do more work about how do you see yourself, say, as a man in this in this particular dynamic, if it's a heteronormal heterosexual couple. You think, well, if you don't trust other men, there's a part of you, the man that you don't trust. I, I went through that and I had to really go deep to accept my masculinity uh, and not be afraid of it, not feel that it's somehow damaging or, or bad because I've known bad men. You know, I think that, uh, again, part of this uh, maybe uh, unlearning of a lot of toxic and monogamous norms 
is to re remember that oftentimes what my mind creates is a story, a potential outcome that, you know, maybe the, my partner will leave me, uh, they'll find out somebody else, I, they'll compare me unfavorably, etc. These are all stories my mind is creating um, because there is an underlying fear there that I don't want to be alone. So then my mind is creating these scenarios, but it's not reality. It's just a mind narrative. And if I remember that, that this comes potentially from past experience, from these underlying fears, then the underlying fear is what I need to work on. It's like, why am I afraid to be alone? Right? Why do I, do I have an attachment wounding? Um, because my parents were a particular way because my, maybe my ex partner cheated on me and now I have this fear again, not my partner's problem. <laughs> so reiterating mm. that. And if by, by making it their responsibility, I'm basically parentifying them, right? Creating this kind of very unhealthy, I think, uh, parent child dynamic within a relationship. And that's often leads to other problems in the relationship when that happens, including a lack of sexual desire um, and, and, and a shifting power dynamic. Uh, there's a few, a couple of other things I think that are important to maybe share in terms of like, what do you, how do you get there? Which is, first of all, uh, practicing generosity and, and compassion is a big part of it, right? It's like, I know that I make mistakes sometimes, I'm a human, and sometimes we make agreements and some things are not very clear and I would interpret the agreement the way that is favorable to me. And then my partner will see that after the fact and be like, no, but that's not what we agreed to. And this is how I interpreted it uh, in a more stringent way, that stringent way that I feel more comfortable with. And then we have an impasse and we have a conflict. So beyond the communication part, just learning to communicate really, really clearly. When you're starting off on this process, whether you are a couple that opened up a previously closed relationship or whether you are starting dating somebody new and you want to be open from the beginning, it doesn't matter. The, the point is, you will come across situations that you did not anticipate. You can mm. try and imagine all the scenarios and there'll be something you left out for sure, right? Now, in my coaching, I, I often go through this with my with clients and give them other scenarios that I've been experienced in, in the past and they maybe haven't thought about it. So that's great. But still, something's going to be missed and they're going to come across something that is just totally new that they don't know how to deal with. So really the key is to first remember that I'm a human, I make mistakes, my partner is human and I make mistakes. And to always come with this compassion that my partner is more likely to have made a mistaken error than intentionally try to do something against me, you know, to harm me. Uh, yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, we we forget that so much, don't we? We just think sometimes it can be so easy just to to end up on a point scoring system rather than to remember that actually we we want this to work and this isn't yeah. something that they're doing intentionally yeah. but yeah that's a really great point do you find there's a difference between um what women are worried about when it comes to polyamory compared to what men are worried about not especially i just think that women again generalizing here women um have learned how to communicate their feelings much better than men have. They're learned that they can be vulnerable and that's not somehow re reduces them as a person. So they can talk about things in a more, in a, in a clearer way, right? Um, mm. When they feel safe, they can ask for what they want in a clearer way. I think with men and also like their feeling of safety comes from just knowing that their partner will kind of like receive them, accept them. 
With men, it's a little bit trickier because they've not learned the language of emotional vulnerability. They often equate strength with just being stoic and just dealing with shit and mm-hmm. uh, just putting up, enduring. That's kind of qualities that to, to a lot of men feel like this is the, the kind of the, the masculine. So admitting they're scared, admitting they're lonely, admitting they're, they don't know what they're doing is basically they perceive it as emasculating. So I think that's where the challenge is. Ultimately, everybody has very, very similar needs. When men feel safe, it's when they feel safe in their own masculinity. And I think when women feel safe, it's often when they feel safe in their surrounding kind of environment. So that's a little bit of a, of a different. Uh, but once we kind of get through that, that layer, um, people have very similar needs, desires, you know, to be loved, um, not to have to fear, um, and to be accepted for who they are. And, and maybe, mm-hmm. maybe with, often with men, it's like it takes time to, for them to figure out who they really are. Mm. Is this where the the ideals that you focus on when it comes to uh, well, I mean, let's talk about what the the techniques that you use: radical honesty, nonviolent communication, and wheel of consent. So, so just explain what those what those are for us. Well, nonviolent communication is uh, is a tool that people use to be able to communicate with another person uh, in a very clear way, uh, in a very grounded way, without getting activated. So there's a process of being able to listen to the other person, fully be there, holding space for them to share their feelings, right? There's a process of um, separating an observation uh, or the reality of the situation objectively from the feeling that it elicits in you Mm. and understanding that that there's a difference between them. So it's uh, both in terms of like sharing your experience and listening to your partner and then noticing what happens in your body and to your feelings when they share that with you. But knowing that you can hold both at the same time. So if I'm hearing something and I, and I, and I feel, okay, I feel like they're attacking me for what something I did or something I said, I can basically sit with that and, and actually start processing that what, what their experience is, is true for them. Therefore, it is true. It exists, you know, their feeling. I may have not meant to say what, I, what they think I said, or, I may, or maybe they misunderstood me. But if I just cut them off and say, no, 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 you misunderstood me. It's not like that. They're just going to get extractivated and pushed back, right? So I need to hear them fully, validate what they said is true for them, and also show them that I understand it and I, and I have empathy for that. And then I can offer, okay, would you like to hear my side or like how I experienced it, right? Now, when they feel validated and heard, they're going to be a lot calmer and grounded than if they feel that I'm trying to negate them or... Uh, talk over them or you know, explain it away. So that's uh, that's kind of what in a gist nonviolent communication attempts to do. Again, it's a tool. You can also use that tool if you want to manipulate somebody into feeling a certain way or getting your side of the story. You can use the same mechanism also for that. So it's really important that your intention is to use it for connection, right? Not for manipulation. And then radical honesty... Um, is something that I actually often use in, com- in com- com- combination with nonviolent communication, although they're kind of the separate modalities. And that's, um, again, that's a, I think radical, that's a distillation of various therapy, therapeutic practices uh, that basically focus on how can I be more honest with myself? How can I stop lying to, me, to myself, first of all? And, and also realizing that when I'm withholding stuff, I'm using up energy 
that drains me start first, right? So I don't feel as free when I'm withholding, when I'm keeping stuff or worse, lying about it. So that's something that I'm doing. That's a bad thing I'm doing to myself. Now, secondly, as I mentioned earlier, I'm withholding. I'm also not giving my partner enough power, enough autonomy, because I'm not giving them the information they need to make decisions. So the the first part is this kind of self-honesty, but then the other part is to know how to communicate it, again, in a way that isn't going to just make myself the asshole to just like info dumps or dumps everything on them and expect them to deal with it, Yeah. right? Because the other flip, the flip of the coin is I need to hear their honesty and not resist and not feel reactionary. So I need to understand how to, how to hold space for that. And that is, again, it's a, it's a practice. There are courses, there are retreats, you know, there are various, there are workshops to be able to practice it through various techniques and, and exercises and games and things. And then the, I guess the other thing that I've picked up in the last years is the wheel of consent, which is a methodology developed by Betty Martin uh, from the U S at its simplest. It's a way of understanding that when it comes to consent, we have to really, again, go back to intention and ask the questions, who is receiving pleasure, uh, who is giving pleasure, and then also who is doing and who is being done to. And understanding that when, um, and that can apply to both um, touch and also services that you're offering to somebody. So understanding that uh, when you're in an exchange with another person, you can be doing something to them for your pleasure or for their pleasure. And we need to be clear on what that is, where where that line is. And the, re- the reason why it's called a wheel is because you have these these um, uh, four quadrants within the wheel. And then if it's inside the wheel, it's consensual, as in uh, I'm consenting to somebody doing something to me, or I'm consenting to doing something for another person. And then if it's outside of the wheel ra- kind of radius, it's non-consensual. There's a shadow side where somebody, for example, is asking me, to do something and I agree, but internally I don't actually want to. So I'm again, enduring, putting up with, um, maybe I'm thinking I'm doing it just to get something back in return, right? Um, Or just so they don't ask me for something else. So you can see how it it applies, learning that applies to people who may be put into coercive situations in relationships, right? Mm. And when it comes to things like, for example, opening up a relationship where you have to really change dramatically the way you related to your partner. Mm. You really have to let go of what you thought your relationship was and create a new relationship with the same person. Part of it is also recognizing when I've been the people pleaser or the martyr, right? Or whether I've been the taker and the person who just like overrides my partner's um, needs. Mm. And that's where this kind of wheel work is really effective. That sounds so, I've never heard of the wheel consent. And I think a lot of people would just jump to the conclusion that it's all about sex, but it it sounds more like, oh, am I doing them a fair, am I picking them up at the airport at four o'clock in the morning? Am I, you know, doing acts of service in the hope that I'm getting something back? It's not just about, oh, are we fucking, you know? So it sounds, exactly. yeah, yeah. that's such a, a great way of thinking about it. And I think there's a, a lot of people um, out there who, when they're, starting their polyamory journey I'm thinking of the times where I've looked into polyamory and like guys have just said 
it's all been on their timetable. Do you know what I mean? It's never been, oh, they come to me. It's always been like, oh, I'm free at this time, da, 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 rather than the other way around or, or you know, being willing to meet me halfway or anything. So it's, it all sort of, this all just seems, it's all just really fascinating. That's what I'm trying to say, Roy. And it seems like I want to get the book. <laughs> you need to write a book on this. This is great. When you get someone coming in um, for one of the support groups or when you're offering therapy, do you, is there anything you ask them to ask themselves so that they know they're ready for the journey? I don't think there's anything specific that I would say I, I ask across all these encounters. I, I really try to get a sense of the person and what's really the, the most important thing for them right now. Mm. Sometimes I might come, a person comes to me and they, maybe their partner wants to be poly, you know, and they want the relationship to be open and they're struggling with that because it's not something they ask for. Sometimes it happens uh, very abruptly, very suddenly. Sometimes it happens after the, the partner already did something, already connected, and then they're coming to them, which makes it harder in some ways. It may be easier another way because, okay, it's already a fact on the ground. It's already happened. We got to deal with it, right? So, but, but then, you know, there's the added issue of their trust being broken. The thing is that when, they don't, when they're not sure, you know, they, and, and they love their partner, they want to support their partner, they want their partner to be happy, and that's a big component of that because... Um, you know, you have to ask yourself that question. Do you want your partner to be the fullest, most authentic ver version of themselves? Is that who you want to love? Or do you want to love the person who contorts themselves to fit your ideals? And I think that's that's an important question to ask when you're in a relationship. That's so, it's so interesting because that, I mean, thinking about if if a partner turns around and says, I want to try an open relationship, is there an easier way than than just because how how do you do that how can you say that without it being very sudden is there an easier way to ease someone into the thoughts i wish i had an encyclopedic uh, memory of all my instagram posts for the last two years because i I did write a post about it <laughs> at some point um so yeah there is um there's no simple easy way to do it it's going to be awkward no matter what so what i often suggest is you start by laying some groundwork um, I, I created this um, path called uh, the Wheel of Connection, where uh, you slowly build trust towards uh, the situation where you can talk about anything openly without being activated, without it going into a conflict. And uh, the first step is to uh, have check-ins, just like know that you can talk about your relationship as a thing, not just talk about stuff that you both have to do, but actually schedule time to say, let's talk about how our relationship structure is right now. What are we both getting out of it? Um, is there anything, any areas where we're not feeling heard, where um, I'm feeling I'm not getting as much attention or my needs aren't being met, etc.? And just hold space for learning how to do it using nonviolent communication, for example, as a tool to just create that container where you can both talk about everything openly and share. Now, it may not come easily, but it's an important component to basically say, to my partner, I want to create a situation where I can come to you and talk to you about things, even if they're difficult. How do we build that? How do we create that? And then we can practice being honest about things. And you can start with smaller things, like I don't like the way you load the dishwasher, and I always end up like after you leave, going and doing it after you to uh, to get more to fill more things in there. And I just uh, don't want to tell you because I don't want to start an argument. Okay. For example, it could be small things, right? <laughs> I don't like the way you pick your nose like, um, while we're watching TV, but like. <laughs> Talking about it not um, in a complaining way, but just like, hey, this is how this is affecting me as well. Okay, can we do something about it? Can we open this up for discussion? And then you learn to talk about awkward things, about difficult things, 
right? And without without mm. shame, embarrassment, etc. Or yes, with embarrassment, but like again, having that vulnerability to be embarrassed in front of your partner, and that's okay. Yeah. And then we need to learn that uh, how to argue in a constructive way, in a helpful way, right? Without resorting to kind of blaming each other, to polarizing kind of positions. So there are again, there are various methodologies and practices that help us learn to argue and fight better, right? Looking for mutual kind of collaboration rather than compromising or accommodating or just being angry at each other. And that is, again, a learned process. We need to know how to advocate for our own needs. So if I come, you know, if my goal is to say I want to talk about being open, maybe there are certain needs that I have that right now are not being met. And that can be, again, again, certain fetishes maybe that my partner isn't interested in. It can be that they're busy with, with work all the time and they just don't have any, any time and energy for me. Um, or it can be that mm. I have a need to hold, to kind of experience love for more than one person. Um, I have a need for sexual variety and excitement. Um, for some people, that's a thing. And it's good to actually know and, and learn what are my needs and, and, how, and then how to express that. So that leads to creating mm. this, this container of trust where I can come to my partner and say, hey, um, I know I can come to you with anything and this is what's going on for me. You know, uh, I've been reading this book or I've watched this film or, you know, maybe we can watch it together or listen to this podcast. And um, let's talk about what this brings up for you because I want to share what it brings up for me. I really love that. That is such a, we never do that. We never think of our relationship as something to sit down and talk about and discuss. It's just we're in a relationship now and that's done and that's great. How are you? How was your day? But it's not like, let's sit down and see how we're progressing and what we can do about this, what keeps us better. So I really love that idea. Now you dropped in the hint of your Instagram. So please, 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 Roy, tell people where they can find you and how they can get more details. Well, I have a website where I post long form articles, blog posts, I would say if you're interested in long form, that's a great uh, resource. There's also events and uh, that I run, like regular events uh, in London and other cities in the UK, and uh, workshops online as well. And there are recorded videos around introducing polyamory, uh, how do I know I'm polyamorous, again, around jealousy, about the abundance mindset. There's lots of free videos and paid videos. Now, my Instagram... And uh, now Threads is open relating, also on Facebook. I'm just open relating, one word. And uh, that would be posts, videos, and text posts, uh, again, with helpful insights and tips um, about relationships. So I don't, I don't see myself as somebody specifically educating or advocating for polyamory or any other kind of specific dynamic in relationships. What I'm interested in is that everybody figures out who they are and what relationship dynamic works best for them. And if they're not sure, they can experiment until they figure it out. And it's something that can change over time. Like I'm solo polyamorous now. Maybe in five years, I would want to live with a partner. I don't know. I know that this works right now and I have no, no plans to change it. But you don't know the future, right? I think that's a really another important yeah. thing is like you don't know what will happen to you or your partner. So you can't rely on everything lasting forever and just being the same. Just know that things are going to change and learn how to adapt to change and be okay with that because ultimately change brings growth. So yeah, so I want everybody to have the relationship dynamic that suits them best. And I'm calling for discussion and um, uh, yeah, discussion around that topic, 
I call for conscious relationships, for expansive relationship. Like even if you're monogamous, you can still talk about fancying other people, right? You can still fantasize about stuff like that and not denying that you do that. That doesn't have to risk anything happening in the relationship that you don't want to happen. I totally understand. And believe me, I am not giving up my fantasies of Jason Momoa for anyone. So there we go. What was your what was the name of your website? It's openrelating.love. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Roy Graf. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have once again delved into the fun bags only to discover them flowing with kinky questions. So I am here to satisfy your curiosity. Kelly on Instagram, she's asking handcuffs or gaffer tape? Cut right to the chase there, Kelly. Uh, So I always, if anything, I would always recommend handcuffs over gaffer tape because gaffer tape, you don't want anything that if you pull on it, then starts to get tighter and tighter. And honestly, you can't get out of gaffer tape very easily. So uh, handcuffs. But for me personally, neither. I like wrist cuffs. So with wrist cuffs, you can put them on or put them on someone else, obviously. And then you've got a little bit more of a chain or a clip that you can just clip onto something. They're a bit more versatile. They're a lot more comfortable uh, and they're a lot more easier to get out of if your night goes a little bit Gerald's game. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Fiona on Twitter, she asked, does anyone do plus size strap-on belts past a size 18? Great question, Fiona. Oh, speaking as a bigger girl, this was something that was always a bit of a problem for me. So I used to get mine specially made and there are places that will do them, but they are a lot of money if you go that way and be very specific about the design as well. But they are a lot more better value uh, because I did used to go for some cheap ones but they were always a bit too loose and the positioning was in the wrong place that's something that you've got to be really careful of because otherwise it will just get messy (laughs) good luck Fiona Uh, uh, now I've got had a little anonymous email Uh, they've emailed smutdrop at metro.co.uk as can you and they've said I've been invited to an orgy what do I do Go, enjoy. (laughs) Leave your socks at home to avoid awkward chat at the end. That is my bit of advice. No, okay, seriously. When you go, make sure that you don't assume anything. Don't just assume that because people are at a sex party or an orgy that anything goes. Make sure that you know the rules beforehand and you always ask consent of anyone there. Because it doesn't mean that you've got carte blanche. No, Um, we've got loads of great advice in the archives. Just look at anything involving swingers clubs and sex parties. We've got loads of different episodes on that in the Metro archive. You'll be happy to know that I am back on Instagram as that Miranda Kane. Yay! So you can slide into my DMs or contact me on Twitter as Miri Kane or email smutdrop at metro.co.uk. I've been Miranda Kane. Smutdrop was produced by Pineapple Audio Production for metro.co.uk. If you are enjoying this weekly dollop of saucy inspiration, then please leave me a nice review. And in the meantime, I'll I'll be back to prick up your ears next week. And remember, don't do anything I wouldn't do, but if you do, then name it after me.